Hello, you've tuned in to a podcast series about people all born after World War II who were members of the Communist Party of Australia, the CPA, which wound up over 30 years ago. I'm Stephen Ricks, one of those former members of the CPA, and I was born in 1957. This is episode 9. In this episode, we continue to hear from former CPA members about the contribution their membership of the CPA made to their political awareness and political activity. Margaret Penson valued the core principles of justice and the right to basic services which characterised CPA members and how experiencing this contributed not just to what they wanted to achieve, but how they were to achieve that too. The reg, she refers to, is reg wilding. Well, let's, let's go. let me go back a step. One of the things I've always valued enormously from being around party people is a view that there are core principles about justice, um, about the right of people to have access to things like health and education, um, just that political framework that always comes up in discussion when you talk to party people. You can, you know, I think you can tell someone who's who who has been around left politics just by the words they use when they're describing a social circumstance or a social issue. Um, so that way of thinking was really influential on me when I was trying to deal with the issues that we had to deal with in the union. And Reg was a, he was a huge mentor for me. Um, I think because he could just cut through the crap and we had an idea of what we wanted to do, of how we wanted to make the change. We had, I think the party taught me about strategy too, about looking at an issue, asking why you want to change it, how you want to change it, what do you want to see as the outcome, talking about that collectively and then trying to put it into place. So working with someone like Reg was, um, I, I think I would have been a different person if that hadn't happened. So the influence of the party on my work in the union was, was huge, big. Chris Lloyd refers to First Nations awareness as a major contribution the CPA made to his political formation. Chris also credits the development of a sophisticated understanding of spookism, the secrets, the stumblebums, to his membership of the party. The big issues of the early part of my life, of course, were... uh, what we now partly call identity politics and a lot of it non-identity politics, things like the women's struggle, which I don't consider to be an identity politics struggle. Um, Aboriginal issues, I think far more I learnt of those from the Communist Party than anywhere else and and no small thanks to party people uh, getting involved in things like the Nookumbar dispute, comrades like uh, Paul Kaplan, if he ever did become a comrade, uh, people like Leslie Corbett, uh, many of these party people, 
Pat Haynes was a big influence on me in that respect. She was Aboriginal Medical Service uh, or Aboriginal Legal Service, I can't remember which name, Medical Service. And her husband, the head of the UTU, Revo Gandini, they had an enormous influence on something I'd never really paid much attention to, the struggle of Indigenous people. Women's movement, no, I learned more about that at university than anywhere else. The conservation movement, my mother never got out of that already had those sorts of things, the environment sort of issues. So it was really thing, the Aboriginal movement were the biggest one that the party introduced me to, but it also introduced me to the world of spook mm. and spookism. And that was something I wasn't aware of. I was greatly influenced by particularly Laurie Ahrens's general writings in the, inside the party about the activities of security services. And as I've said to you many times, his book title, Stumblebum Syndrome, stuck in my head forever because it, I had known about special branches activities in Queensland. In fact, one of my jobs for the CLCC, the, Camp, the Civil Liberties Coordinating Committee, was to photograph and monitor the special branches' operations. Something they never picked up, by the way, my own ASIO files. They never knew that I was the one photographing them. And anyway, that's another story. But that was another element. The element of the deep state, and I don't mean that in a conspiracy theory sense, the element of the deep state and its prejudices and behaviour was another thing the party gave me that I didn't know. But, yeah, not so much other campaigns and issues. Michael Evans credits the party with learning about the women's movement, the indigenous rights movement and other social movements. Michael also credits the party with spending hours and hours in meetings. Mm. Well, certainly I was heavily involved in industrial uh, stuff the whole time I was in the party, clearly. I was always an industrial activist to, to one extent or another, a delegate or a union employee. Um, certainly the environment movement, when I was um, first moved to, well, both... Well, in fact, the very first demonstration I ever went to in Brisbane, um, this wasn't necessarily as a result of being in the party, but was around, um, it was a, they were loading some uranium on the docks in Brisbane. Uh, and I and a, a group of other people went and tried to stop the train getting through the gate uh, and ended up getting hauled away by cops. We didn't get arrested, but we got dragged away by the cops on the on the night so clearly you know uh, uh, the uh, the whole range of social movement the women's movement the uh, indigenous rights movement mm. um all of those movements i i either you know i wouldn't say i worked in any 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 of them other than industrially very uh deeply uh, but i was certainly aware of them uh always attended demonstrations um, did things that I could at the time, uh, went to lots and lots and lots of meetings. Uh, yeah, so all of that, or, or that whole, the, the whole range of sort of um, places where the party was active. As a party member, Brian Mason became aware of the gay movement, an important player in liberation and equality struggles in the 70s and 80s the same time that the AIDS crisis emerged. In addition, the party's emphasis on working-class struggle contributed to Brian becoming a lifelong trade union official. 
I became aware of the gay movement um, about the early, late seventies, early eighties. The gay movement became an important factor in. Uh, struggles for liberation and equality and I'd had no exposure to it before that time and I remember um, the AIDS crisis made that really tangible um, about um, the position that uh, homosexual people and transgender people were in I don't think I would have had that immediate awareness of those issues without um, that being in the CP. And I I remember some great um, uh, gay activists in the party um, who uh, really tried to bring together the, the theories. I think that would be the major one. Um, And I think it was probably my involvement in the party that um, made me head towards being a lifelong union official. Um, It seemed uh, the emphasis on working class and working class struggle um, made me take an interest in the union movement that um, maybe I wouldn't have in other circumstances. Jackie Whitten says that her membership of the party contributed to developing a more intellectual approach to politics, thinking dialectically and embracing new ideas. Jackie refers in particular to learning how to synthesise thinking from a range of sites of struggle. For instance, the women's movement, trade unionism and environmental politics. Um. Probably it was more at an um, intellectual level in some ways because I, I was, um, you know, like people like, I suppose like the, some of the, you know, all of them really, the Aaronses and Joyce Stevens and all of those people, you know, they, were, they studied hard, they studied their politics really seriously. And so... You know, they really um, they really helped, I think, develop my sense of what it means to think, you know, dialectically and 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 how to how to embrace new ideas. So I think at that level, you know, like I I think I I just you know I could become quite fixed about how I think about things, and I just have to really you know reflect back on on people like that, you know, like I just remember listening to, you know, some of the the Builders Labourers um, union reps and talking to us about, you know, issues, how they integrated a range of issues. So I think that was the the thing I became aware of, like how that, yeah, how, how to think about things. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, sorry, that's me, like synthesising, you know, across you know, race, class and sex or, you know, like, but not that's just sort of like blunt areas, but you know what I mean, like how to, and how um, how they could talk to people, you know, like that was a really, um, you know, like I was pretty rabid activist when I was young, you know, quite, 
I mean, I can't believe some of the things I could do, but also what, you know, like, and I think that I really admired them a lot. Julius Rowe refers to the development of an internationalist perspective due to the inspiration he received from CPA members as a major element of his political education in the party. Julius was then able to take that perspective into the trade union movement. The party also played a major role in Julius's education about and appreciation for the women's movement. Um, well, I think I think the, in the international stuff, I think that my um, leadership and activity in that area um, was very much um, influenced by and inspired by what I um, became aware of and exposed to because of my work in the party. So, you know, for example, I, um, Joyce Stevens and I went on the first Communist Party delegation to China um, after the, you know, the split. Um, and so Joyce Stevens had been there during um, 1940, not in 19, no, 1951, mm-hmm. she, was, she was there. So quite soon after the revolution, um, she spent, you know, 12 months secretly there. No one was able to know that she was, <laughs> she did, as far as her family was concerned, they didn't know where she was. She disappeared. She was there. And where Joyce and I met, you know, people that she'd met when, you know, back in, you know, 1951. Um, and um, I, um, you know, so I was there for with her for a about a month, and um, you know that a lot of what I learned from that, and the sort of exposure to issues from that, really um, inspired me to be more involved in that work in the union. Um, so I think that did um, that certainly had an influence. Um, I think um, most of the other sort of key areas of activism I'd already sort of been very involved in, you know, the peace movement and environment movement and um, I suppose awareness of the women's movement. Though to be fair, I think I learnt a lot more about the women's movement and... um, uh, appreciating the issues involved uh, as a result of the party than I had uh, pre-party. Mike Donaldson referred immediately in our discussion to the long history of feminism in the party and how his exposure to that had a major influence on his activism. Mike also refers to how the party contributed to his appreciation of the link between industrial and environmental demands. 
Well, the women's movement, of course, you know, like the women's collective, it wasn't called that, but became to be called the women's collective. It began meeting in Wollongong in 1968. So the women were already organising separately to the men way back then, you know, mm. 10 years before I joined the party. So, um, yeah, so feminism, you know, became like... Uh, a very important part of my life and you know, in the sense that you know, I had a wife and I worked with women comrades in the party and uh, women colleagues at, in the university and, um, and, and, and you know, sexism and chauvinism really had to be dealt with and, and, and combated. And, uh, so, yeah, that, that, I guess more than anything, it, it was the women's movement that had the biggest impact on me, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was marginally involved in the peace movement, but not very much, and and of course, really interested in in the emerging environmental movement. Um, and the the South Coast Labor Council had been active in that area for some time too, fighting industrial pollution and and also um, deep concerns about the transportation of coal. You know, they kept wanting to put more and more coal trucks onto the roads. You know, so that became a big issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so a growing interest and a concern about environmental questions as well, you know, was was part of my learning experience too. Philippa Hall says that her actions in and for the party played a greater role in her life than becoming aware of or participating in movements outside the women's movement and her trade union activity both of which she was already engaged in. Uh, no, I wouldn't say I did. I, I really just kept doing the same things, the women's movement things and the um, the union things. Obviously, the sort of broad um, bits, some bits of the life of the party, like I said, the, uh, the Marxist summer schools and... May Day marches and periodically kind of standing around in the sun handing out how to votes in um, absolutely benighted election campaigns. They were all, but they were very little. They were little areas of activity and I wasn't very active. Like I had no time. I, I just spent my 30s in meetings um, and uh, like, uh, like, Every night I was kind of at all these meetings, both in the union and in the party and with the uh, women's movement groups. And um, I certainly wasn't in any position to pick up anything else. Bob Makinson recollects how Aboriginal demands for more domestic anti-racist activity at the time of the anti-apartheid demonstrations and the role which party member Dennis Freeney played in response to that demand had a significant impact on his activism. I am sure Bob's memory of the first sight of the Aboriginal flag at its first display in Sydney resonates with all of us as we move towards meeting the just demands of the Uluru Statement in May 2022. Um, but the first communist I got to meet and to know in terms of political practice was, um, I think, Dennis Freeney. Um, 
I'd been a participant, at, as I mentioned, at several of the anti-Springbok uh, actions um, in 1971, uh, getting self-arrested at one of the test matches. Um, and after that campaign, it was over. I was aware in late 1971 of calls from some of the Aboriginal activists um, challenging the left to bring their anti-racist struggle back home uh, and to do something about domestic racism. And Dennis and the party uh, took that call seriously and Dennis got the gig to uh, work with a bunch of Aboriginal and some non-Aboriginal activists in Sydney within a wider network, of course, uh, to build a um, quote-unquote black moratorium demonstration uh, for um, uh, July 1972. Dennis was co-convener of the Sydney meetings, that organising group, uh, which from memory were held in the old Boilermakers Hall in Castle Ray Street. So I went along from a fairly early stage in the organising process, maybe December 71 onwards. My role was very minor. Um, I was still in high school, but I learned a lot. Um, I wrote my first leaflet. Um, which Dennis had to basically rewrite because it wasn't much good. Um, and uh, in retrospect, um, though this was it was an important um, event or process because it was the first um, urban organising focus for Aboriginal rights since the '67 referendum. And it had a wholly new focus on land rights, particularly as a result of the Gurindji struggle, which the CPI, of course, had been uh, strongly supported for um, a decade or so. And there was also a generational transition beginning to get underway in the Aboriginal movement. So the Black Moratorium organising group in Sydney was Aboriginal dominated, um, but with the leavening of white supporters, and it included people like Gary Foley and Paul Coe, Bobby Sykes, later Roberta Sykes, uh, Pat Etock, Kevin Gilbert, um, Bob Belier and Kay Belier, um, and a young lawyer named Peter Tobin, who I got on with very well. Um, I was uh, very cut up when he died tragically early, um, not long afterwards. And I remember at one of the meetings, the slogan, Ningla Ana, we are hungry for our land, was adopted. Um, at another uh, meeting, uh, Gary Foley and a woman, but I can't remember exactly who, um, unwrapped a flag that had been flown for the first time in Adelaide a few weeks before. And it was the now universal Aboriginal flag um, designed by Harold Thomas in Darwin. Uh, this was its first exposure of this meeting in Sydney. Um, and um, even at the time, there was a sense that it was a pretty special moment. Um, uh, there was, a, there was a, an atmosphere in the room around that. Speaking personally for a moment, the criticisms of the Morrison government for slow implementation of any policies designed to overcome the massive inequality and inequity which First Nations people have experienced for generations, rarely mention the disgraceful response by Prime Minister Turnbull when the Uluru Statement was made. We should not forget Turnbull's behaviour when we hear him described as a moderate Liberal. You've been listening to the voices of Australian Communists born after World War II. 
The next episode will be the last in this series. We'll hear a little about what people have been doing since the party dissolved. Comrades, the book marking the 100th anniversary of the formation of the CPA is available from your favourite bookshop or the Search Foundation. Dr Mick Patton provided invaluable technical assistance. See you next time. Thank you.